Hello. Thanks for tuning in to I Don't Get It. This is a podcast about performances in whatever form that are happening in Edmonton. Uh, my name is Fonda, and we are proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. All right, everyone. So it's May. Um, it's raining some days, but things are getting green at least. So that's nice. Um, also, when this episode comes out, it's Mother's Day. So love your moms, folks. Um, over the past weeks, we've been talking to artists who have been affected by the pandemic. And this week, I'm talking with a person who has a massive professional and creative resume. And full disclosure, one of those resume items was working with me at LitFest. She is the City of Edmonton's current Poet Laureate, a Canadian individual slam poetry champion, the founder of Moon Jelly House, a new publishing house centering on the voices of marginalized poets. She is a two-time Canadian Festival of Spoken Word finalist and a three-time coach of the Edmonton Poetry Slam. She has been a recipient of the Edmonton Artist Trust Fund Award and is also... Also, current executive director of the Edmonton Poetry Festival, which is Western Canada's largest poetry festival. Did you know? Um, And she's also an organizer and community builder with the Breath in Poetry Collective. Her chapbooks have sold over a thousand copies, and she has a full-length poetry collection forthcoming with New West Press in 2021. Over the years, this artist has performed across Canada and around the world. Her poetry speaks to themes of race, disability, feminism, and identity, and she has been busier than ever lately, though she notes not getting up until noon most days. Uh, At least that's what she told me. So now, for your listening pleasure, everyone, give it up for our guest, the fierce and feisty and also very fabulous Nisha Patel. Hello, Nisha. Hi. How are you? How are you doing? You know, it's such a complicated question. I think some days I'm doing okay. And then the floor kind of falls out beneath my feet. And eventually I go to bed and I try again the next day. Mm-hmm. I feel like every third or fourth day is sort of like the, one of those, the floor falls out days. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, so, um, I mean, you do you do many things around Edmonton um, as a performer and poet and uh, arts producer. So 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 what are you up to these days? I think uh, if you had to kind of narrow it down, put it on paper, uh, part of me is still trying to create as an artist, create new work, work on my existing work, uh, improve that and figure out if it's still okay to talk about what's going on and how I can talk about what's going on around us. Another part of me is still organizing, you know, like we're putting together events to move online. We're figuring out how much money we have. We're still running an organization, you know, even though most of my staff have been let go at this point. And so I'm still dealing with kind of those overhead issues. And then on top of that, we're trying to figure out ways to kind of reinvent a wheel we didn't even know we had to reinvent, you know, this whole idea of being indoors and producing and moving things online, both as an organizer and an artist. How can I do that for myself personally? Where's the next paycheck going to come from? And how can I do that as an organization and support other artists? So really figuring out what's going on and what we can do about it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of, you know, your role with Poetry Festival and also um, as Poet Laureate, can you give our listeners a little bit of a sense of what, like, what does a poetry event generally look like? And then how is that, how has the pivot to trying to do those things online gone for you? Yeah, for a more traditional event, you know, someone asks poets to show up. We read our work or we perform our work. We talk to people in the audience. We chat about themes and things that touched people. We sell our books and we go home. From an organizer's standpoint, that's a pretty straightforward model. Now that we've moved online, that model kind of falls apart. What we're seeing is that people are just not tuning in all the time, right? Like you might have had a hundred people come in person and make an evening out of an event. And now you're seeing 20 people go online because they're being inundated with so many opportunities to see things online because frankly, everyone's in the same boat trying to figure out like when the next engagement is going to be at the same time, you know, I rely quite heavily on things like book sales, hand to hand, you know, meeting people face to face. So like moving my entire practice online has been very confusing and also has like a really big financial bottom line for me. So that's been interesting as well. So just like really trying to navigate the change in these events. And we're also trying to find like innovative ways to do it, right? What can we do in a workshop that isn't just someone in front of a camera speaking or giving a lecture, you know? So we're really trying to push the boundaries here and try to understand what those boundaries were in the first place. Uh, with with literary events, you know, poetry and book events, a lot of the a lot of what is actually just being asked to do is to gather in a room with um, a person or a personality and have them share their work uh, and maybe have your book signed. So when there's not that connection or that engagement happening on the other side, like if, you know, if you as a poet who is performing can't hear someone snapping their fingers in support, um, you know, how, how, did, how is that um, affecting the the work for one, but also even just like your ability as a performer to to kind of continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think it's almost like taking a leap of faith and hoping that an audience who has chosen to tune in are people who are going to treat your words with respect and uh, with the heaviness and weight they deserve, and that they take away something from it, even if you can't provide that kind of feeling in person for such a visual and auditory medium I found that videos just don't do the same thing you know you really want that in-person interaction but insofar as we can't have that right now we do our best to try to perform as if we were reaching out to people in front of us and not just people through a screen. Mm-hmm. You were able to participate in as one of the Canada Performs um uh, selections in the, in the last couple of weeks here. How how was that experience for you? And I I know there's an application process and everything. How did that mm-hmm. whole thing come together for you? It was a really interesting experience because when the fund was first announced, they basically had opened it up and kind of paused it to point towards musicians. And I kind of just applied on a whim, thinking that hey, like I might as well be doing everything in my like you know, humanly possible efforts to try to make it through a pandemic. And so I applied and I was like, hey, I've done a ton of performances. I would love to do one with the series. And then many weeks later, they emailed me back and they were like, yeah, we'd love to have you. And so I set up the series. I actually um, invested in some equipment 
mm-hmm. to uh, kind of make the make the setup easier and the sound quality a little bit better. And then I did like my Instagram live, and it was funny because doing it live only resulted in like thirty or forty people tuning in, and then putting it out there afterwards, like a recording of it, meant that like hundreds of people accessed the recording. And I think for poets, we're used to these kinds of really small audiences, right? If we have 40 people in a room, that's a packed room for most of us. But for a musician, having like 200 people tune in live would have been like complete failure. So it was really uh, hopeful that they were funding things like poets during this time because we still have audiences that want to hear us and that they had like enough faith to pick someone like me to do the show. Mm-hmm. And one of very few Edmonton um, selections that was really represented there. I know I've seen that there's, you know, a handful of musicians in a couple theater shows, but um, a lot of the a lot of the representation is not from Edmonton. So it was really cool to see to see you up there. <laughs> yeah. And it's something that I didn't really realize until after the fact that it wasn't, in fact, uh a lot of representation coming from the West, um, especially not places like the prairies. Like we just don't see it that much. So it was actually more exciting, I think, in the aftermath to have performed in this series. I kind of got disconnected from everything, right? Because we were just stuck at home and no one is talking about things unless you're engaging with them online. So I think it gave me more perspective afterwards to know that I had been a part of something. Hmm. Um. I want to talk a little bit about the economy of all of this because, um. Well, I mean, Canada performs is one of the ones that is actually disclosing how much they are giving to the performers. That I've seen that it's a thousand dollars for each approved performance. Um. Is that is that correct in your experience? That is correct. And and so I mean I don't know how that works for you know. People where there, you know, there's like a 20 person theater show that's that's going up if they're splitting all of that money or anything like that. I guess that's amongst themselves. <laughs> but, um, you know, how are you finding that the compensation for online events and things like that is working? I think that the Canada Performs thing is one thing that seems to be going well um, and relatively easy to access so long as you pass the application process. Um but what have you been um, noticing about anything anything else that you've been asked to do online or that you have put online yourself in terms of, um, you know, making revenue off of it? In terms of compensation, I've seen a huge uh, variation in terms of what people are able to pay and what they're expecting artists to accept. And so there's kind of been a disconnect where some big organizations like Facebook have come out and been like, hey, if you produce content, we're going to compensate you very, very well. And other organizations being like, hey, here are some table scraps. You should take them because you might not get anything. And so there's been definitely different mentalities around it. And some people are kind of coming around to the idea that asking artists to create during these times where literally the entire world is turning to art means that we need to be compensated at much more fair rates than we would have otherwise been. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I happened to be in the mayor's call with the arts community that you were in the other day. And this was also put on by the Edmonton Arts Council. And you made a really interesting point about how um, artists are are still being expected to produce basically for nothing. Um, and I wonder if uh, you can maybe elaborate a little bit on, you know, the history of, <laughs> or at least, you know, your experience with what artists are expected to do and how those expectations have changed now. 
For sure. I've faced a lot of backlash in my career for uh, not taking on enough community work. And in the, the reality is that I take on almost every um, like piece of work people have given me. And when I started to finally assert boundaries around my own capacities to take on what I call community-based work, uh, that's when I started to see a lot of uh, people kind of give their very negative opinions on this as if I owe my time to everyone when in reality like running yourself to the bone means that you do the gigs you actually care about less effectively and so there has been this expectation from multiple people that we should be working for free because we should be like grateful that we have work at all Um, Or they kind of play like this more heroic card, which is that like people need us and therefore we should be working for free. And I just find that it's such a toxic mentality. And it's also one that's always existed in the arts, right? People think you should always produce art for free. And the reality is that I mostly work on projects that are funded. You know, like I have so many different ideas for projects all the time. And the reality of capitalism means that if I can't get funding for these big ideas, I'm not going to be making income otherwise. So I don't have the luxury of not having a job or not having grant funding when I want to take on artistic work. Yeah, we're sort of kind of in a similar boat that way where we have like regular sort of producing jobs within the city, but then also have a lot of other gigs. All We're trying to do all these other things on the side, which is kind of like everyone in the gig economy is trying to work anyway. Um, but I feel that artists have always done that. Mm-hmm. It's almost expected of artists at this point, right? You have your day job. And some of us like you and me are lucky that our day jobs are still in the creative sectors that even on a bad day, we get to uplift other artists, you know, with the work that we do. Um, yeah, it's a huge privilege to be able to say that our day jobs are still in the arts, that people like you and me who are creative on the side still get to on our worst days, fund other people's artistic activities or like find ways for artists to be uplifted. And I think that's really important. But at the same time, recognizing that the art sector and the culture sector is almost entirely nonprofit or charitable work. And therefore, we are being paid at rates that are far, far smaller uh, than those of our corporate counterparts, right? Someone doing like corporate events or putting on shows for like, you know, big companies that have like Christmas parties or whatever, like they're getting paid much, much better than we are in the art sector to do the same type of work and often do the work for audiences who need it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always kind of giggle when, you know, when people when people ask about, you know, your profession or when you're asked to fill out a survey or something like that. And you can say that you're the executive director of something, but it's of an arts festival or or an arts organization. It just has a completely different meaning than, you know, executive director of some multimillion dollar charity or something like that. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Like I was offered an executive director job when I was 26 and I was like, Sure, in one lifetime, it would seem really impressive to be an executive director at 26. But on the other hand, it's like, I make less money as an executive director at 26 than I did as an intern at 22. (laughs) What were were you interning at? Okay, okay, Nisha, what were you interning at? Tell us a little bit about your life before... Before all of this, before Poetry yeah. Festival, and before yeah. we met, before we met at LitFest. Yeah, so um, I was a government intern uh, 
when I graduated university. I graduated with a business degree and a minor in political science. And I had done a lot of campaign politics before that. And so it was something I really enjoyed. And I kind of had this goal of like being a politician's assistant or an aide or an executive assistant or a speechwriter. And I was like, I'm going to pursue this political career. And I had these plans to like work in this election and work in the last election. And it was like a big thing that I wanted to do. And then I started writing poetry. And after about three years of internships, I was like, I've had enough and I want to just try an artistic job. I want to know what will happen. And if it doesn't work, I can come back to government. There will always be another election. And so I quit my job. Um, I came and I worked for you at LitFest. That was my first art sector job. And then after that, I took time off to write my first book. Um, I went traveling. I came back home. And eventually I was offered another artistic job. And so I've been doing this kind of on and off now since 2017, but basically full time as an artist and then full time as a arts organizer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I would like, I don't know if I'll keep this in the recording, but you know, the year that you worked at LitFest, we also had Cy Cromwell, the uh, associate yeah. producer yeah. who, and so you went on to be poet laureate and ED at Poetry Fest. And then Cy went on to um, the very next year, become the executive director at the Regent Park Film Festival in Toronto. So yeah. I felt like yeah. really good about the staff we had that year. <laughs> Should feel good about it. Honestly, like I learned, I learned so much in two months in an artistic job, like in an art sector job, than I did in the first four months of running a festival. Like it was just, it was a totally necessary two months that was almost like a crash course in how to put on a literary event, which became the basis of my reliability as an arts organizer (laughs) and also as a director. Yeah, well, what's kind of what's kind of interesting, too, is that I find sometimes even like, you know, graduates of arts and cultural management um, programs and things like that, both of which you and I are not, um, Mm -hmm. even though that's our career now, or or part of our career now, um, I find that they own the, the only way that you learn how to do this is by doing it. Um, and, and that can be like quite a shock for some people who have just graduated from Crown McEwen. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I just saw a quote on Twitter and it was really funny and they were quoting, uh, a, like a professor and it basically said that the professor was giving out A's to all his students in his MFA in writing because the MFA requires it and that the real world would be enough of a disappointment <laughs> in terms of their rejection. <laughs> And that they would know, the students would know in their heart of hearts whether they had done the right work. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. Well, well, tell us, like, so what is happening right now for Poetry Festival? I know that um, Poetry Festival is usually scheduled to happen in May um, and, of course, is now um, either postponed or you have some other plans. Um, so so what's, what is in the works with, with PoFest mm-hmm. at this point? So we've worked with the Edmonton Arts Council, and we actually have a very small fund set aside to launch uh, some online programming. So that is literally in the works right now. And it's actually going to be geared towards the literary sector in general. So we are going to, and I meant to talk to you about this, we are going to bring in some local writers and mostly highlight local poets and give them 
kind of very respectable paychecks for their work. So we're trying to get as much money as possible into the hands of as many artists as possible in ways that will still impact them positively, right? So we don't want to give $50 or $100. We want to give like an actual paycheck that they would have gotten um, in person or even better than they would have gotten in person. And that'll be part of the transition for the festival in the short term. In the long term, we were hoping to postpone into the fall and run the same festival, the same full gambit of everything we had wanted. But that looks increasing like it's not going to happen, right? Like a lot of arts organizers are suspecting there's going to be audience burnout, that audiences are going to be suspicious, they're not going to want to come out. And so we're planning instead to run a much smaller festival at an un, kind of unplanned date sometime in the fall or even into the new year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that what will be interesting is is the um, ability to not only pivot online, but pivot local so that the because anybody can throw anything online that can be accessible, you know, internationally or nationally very easily. But how are you making it relevant to local audience and local artists? Uh, and I think that that's kind of going to be what's what's maybe cool about how all of this can happen, knowing that we have incredibly talented people in the city um, Mm -hmm. and, and very cool and very cool collaborations with businesses and between organizations and festivals that, that um, I mean, I don't want to say I'm excited about it. I'm kind of terrified about any kind of new world online stuff or things with digital components that I don't understand fully how they work. But um but it could be a really interesting way to make things more accessible than they ever have been. Yeah, no, I think it's really exciting. And uh, I actually, I ran a nine day poetry workshop and I thought it was kind of going to be this big hit or miss thing. You know, either people were going to sign up because they had the time and they were able to access it remotely or no one was going to sign up. And I had just vastly overestimated people's capacities. And what ended up happening was that I had two or three times as many students as I had planned. And they wrote some beautiful things in this class. And they were producing every other day. And they were doing so in an environment that was really supportive that some of them would never would have accessed otherwise, you know, Um, just because so many of my workshops and my performances are in person and I digitize so little of it. You know, I don't make it accessible. And so choosing to make it accessible meant that like people who I haven't connected with in years were now able to access these learnings and do it kind of on their own pace. Wow, that's incredible. So did you find that most of the participants were local and already knew you or were there some completely new ones as well? It was actually very interesting. There were only like three or four local participants, which is less than 10 10 to 20 percent of the class Mm. Uh, and most other people were tangentially kind of people I had met or like friends of friends who had been told about the opportunity but none of them were people I had worked on extensively one-on-one with. Wow oh that's amazing so and did you organize that yourself or was that through some other um, other platform? Uh, No, I organized it myself. Um, It was modeled after uh, an online workshop I had taken last year with an organization called Winter Tangerine. They're like an online magazine that's kind of on hiatus right now. And I followed a lot of the same kind of 
methods of connecting with people online, but I wrote like an entire syllabus myself. I wrote all the prompts and all the writing for that. There was something like 15 or 16 prompts that writers had access to during the entire kind of week and a half they were online. I, you know, ran the lectures. I uploaded the lectures so that people could access them on their own time. Like I did all of it myself. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and amid all of this pandemic and everything like that, I noticed that you launched um, a, a, a pr- an imprint for, for chat books. <laughs> yeah, I launched a publishing house. It's so funny because uh, the publishing house is a partnership between myself, uh, my partner, who's an Indigenous poet uh, and writer here in Edmonton, and our good friend, Catherine, who's also a writer in Edmonton and has won like a couple awards, but doesn't have like a full novel out yet. And so we started as this like indie thing. And we've been trying to launch it for literally months. And so I like to say we were founded technically in 2019, <laughs> because that's how long we've been trying to get this thing going. And it just got to the point where I was like, we're ready now. And I just don't want to wait until the pandemic is over. You know, like I want to bring this out into the world because we've been putting so much effort into it to get it to the point it is today, to get the budgets in place, to get our funding in place and all of that. I'm like, I just don't want to delay. And maybe this is not the right time for it. And so we opened submissions for these chat books. And it's honestly, it's been heartbreaking because there are so many good manuscripts sitting in front of us now and there's there's just not enough resources for us to publish all of the voices we think need to be heard oh my gosh so what is what is the name of this this imprint and how can people find out more about it sure it's moonjellyhouse.ca and it's kind of after well, it's after our love of the jellyfish, the moon jellies, which you can actually raise on your own if you have the the effort and the and the multiple tanks to do it. They're a really beautiful type of jellyfish. And my partner and I are both people who really love sea creatures, who have like really bonded over them. And we thought that we wanted this to be a labor of love, um, something that we did because we were passionate. We're definitely not making any money off of it. And mm-hmm. so we wanted the the imprint to reflect that. And initially we were just gonna publish kind of people we knew or people that we really loved and supported. What we're seeing is that there's so many talented people who have submitted, some of whom we've never even heard of, who have just such outstanding work. And so we're happy that we've reached, I think, new audiences already and that we're going to continue to grow in the years to come. Oh, that's so wonderful. I love the name Moon Jelly, and uh, but I also am terrified of underwater things just in general. So... <laughs> We didn't go with like giant squid house or like whale shark. (laughs) It's the Kraken. We'll just call it the Kraken. Kraken publishing. I feel like that's probably already a thing. (laughs) <laughs> well, Nisha, as as poet laureate, you know, you mentor a lot of people and also a lot of young poets and, and, and artists in Edmonton are looking up to you. What do you what do you feel is your role as poet laureate during this time? It's it's quite unprecedented. I think it's so complicated because the poet laureate role has varied throughout time and in different cities. But what it comes down to is that a poet laureate is supposed to reflect the life of the people who live in the city, who live in these times and reflect the period that we're in. And what I'm finding is that some days that's really hard to do because you are living the same moment 
as everyone else. And on other days, I feel so blessed to have a platform to share, you know, poems that are memorials, poems that are tributes, poems that say something, poems that comment on what's going on. And so I feel very compelled to keep writing during these times. And I feel very grateful to have a platform to do that. And that there are people in the city who are reading my words and finding comfort in them. Mm-hmm. Have you found it easy to be creative during this time? Because I, I've, I've talked to some other folks who f- find that it's actually really, it's really hard um, to kind of break through this, uh, you know, what's, what's happening with everyone and, and, and actually feel like they can, they can be creative in, in a productive sort of way. Mm-hmm. So the benefit of having like so many projects that I always want to do means that I can never really give myself an excuse to stop working. Um, I don't know if that's a benefit or maybe it's a, maybe it's a flaw <laughs> in the plan. But either way, like there's always so many things I want to do. And what I'm finding is that the things that I intended this time to be directed towards creatively, those are not things I'm able to do right now. You know, I'm not able to write my next manuscript. I'm not able to sit down and play around with like, you know, Photoshop and learn these skills that I had planned for myself. What I'm finding is that by forgiving myself and allowing myself to kind of grow into different feelings or into emotions or kind of follow the whims that my body has right now, I'm creating differently. You know, I'm creating things that matter to me right now and that's okay you know, and so I've taken up like lino printing and that's been really interesting. I've written about the pandemic now a couple times. Um, I'm painting more like these are all things that maybe I would have done in a different lifetime, but they need to be done right now. So I'm not trying to beat myself up for not fulfilling the goals and the plan that I had outlined for myself before, but I am trying to allow myself to kind of lean in almost to the urges and the, like the ways that I'm compelled right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any sort of pointers or advice or tips out there for, for artists who are trying to create and are trying to disseminate online during this time? Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll answer it in two parts. The first one, if you're trying to create right now, I think you should really focus on telling your unique story. This is not the time for you to try to interpret or take on um, affects or take on someone else's story. Like this time, you living in your body and the ways that it affects you, the ways that it affects your family, the ways that it affects your partner, like all of these things are so unique to you. And the only story you can tell truthfully and therefore for actually have like an authentic relationship with your audience with is through telling your own story right now. And I just think like, that's what everyone should be doing right now. We should be writing the things that are most urgent to us. And the second part, like disseminating your work online, I think you have to understand that even if you are someone who has brought out hundreds of people to a venue before or played in front of thousands or closed out a festival, your online audience is going to be much, much smaller. And you cannot take that as a mark of how successful you are. (laughs) Because if you do, you will be very, very sad. And so for me, producing the content is more important than 
the engagement numbers, right? Did 500 people see this post? Did 1,000 people see this post? It's nice and you should be looking at those things in the long term, but in the moment that we're living in right now, like you should be focusing on you telling honest stories and the actual engagement that's happening. So like the people who are commenting, what are they saying, right? The two people who tuned into your live, did they stay for the whole thing? Did they talk to you after? Like those are the things that matter, the actual face-to-face engagement or as close as we get to -to face-to-face engagement? Honestly, it's just, it's such a hard time right now to be around other people and not be around other people simultaneously. And I think I just, I just want people to be more forgiving uh, of how we are choosing to cope. I still think we should all be distancing a lot more than people are doing on White Ave right now. But at the same time, like, if someone can't respond to you or if they're not creating compelling work, like that's okay. They're just trying to exist right now. And we need to be more understanding of that. This episode of I Don't Get It is brought to you by The Loop, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. Host Tara McCarthy of Edmonton AM takes you behind the scenes every week, sharing the details that don't make it into a typical radio or TV story. There's always more to the story and more to learn about our city. That's what The Loop is for. A recent episode discusses Alberta's plans to open up again, how a community event went digital, and how romantics in Fort McMurray are keeping their love afloat. Ah, what a time! Find The Loop on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it online at cbc.ca slash Edmonton. Storylines is a podcast from Women in Film and Television Alberta. It highlights some of our province's most successful women in film and television, both behind the camera and in front of it. Host Sheena Rossiter shares more about what to expect from this podcast. I'm Sheena Rossiter, the host of Storylines, a podcast brought to you by Women in Film and Television Alberta. It's a podcast for filmmakers by filmmakers, but it's also a podcast for film and television lovers. We've been speaking with some of the most successful women in film and television with links to Alberta, and we'll hear about everything from how they got their start in the industry, I was writing before I could even spell. I think it's in your blood. To getting a behind-the-scenes look at some of their best projects. Oh, yes, it was really difficult to get broadcasters on board. And hearing about some of the obstacles they faced along the way. We're making waves, but there's still some barriers to power and access that we're still facing. These stories of determination and persistence are the storylines that make up these women's careers. Join me, Sheena Rossiter, as we hear from some of the brightest minds in film and television from in front of and behind the camera. Subscribe now to Storylines wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, follow your storylines. We can't wait to see where they lead. Find Storylines on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at wifta.ca. That's wifta.ca. And also, as we noted in the last episode, too, um, our friend Laura Rabu uh, and Aaron Macri are responsible for the theme music on Storylines. So that's really cool. 
In some Edmonton arts news that is actually happening this week, um, or coming up at least, uh, Vina Amoris Projects are producers behind Tracks, which was supposed to be the final show of the Fringe's off-season series. So now they've ventured to take this experience of the play online with some choose-your-own-adventure sort of options, and that's running May 19th through 24th. Um, and uh, earlier this week, the Globe and Mail talked with several Fringe and festival organizers from Western Canada on the impact of the summer's cancellations. And one of those people they talked to was Christine Lysiak, um, a veteran international fringe performer and producer of Edmonton's Play the Fool Festival. Um, you probably know her from her amazing fringe show called For Science. And she cited an estimated $20,000 in personal losses due to um, three festivals being shut down. So if you think about how many festivals and other things got shut down, um, and, and, you know, compound it for how much it means to so many artists and so many people and generally the economy (laughs) on a whole. Um, yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot of money. Uh, another cool thing found festival has also opened up a call for proposals for their 2020 festival and and the festival itself is running July 2nd through 7th. Um, they're accepting submissions until May 24th, but what's cool about found, um, before now and during this whole pandemic thing is that, uh, it it works all with um, found found spaces and and site specific performances, so it'll be very interesting to see what they're gonna do this year. I'm I'm I for one am really excited about it. Anyhow, um, as we said, there's there's nothing there's not a lot happening live and in person, but of course there are a number of things you can watch online. And if you know about something that from local performers or companies that we should give a shout out to, please let us know. In the show notes, I will also link to Nisha's website and to Moon Jelly House. Um, also, following up from my rant about golf courses last week, I'm going to share a link to the revisionist history episode where Malcolm Gladwell slams golf courses because. I just feel there could be more of that going around. (laughs) In any case, uh, thank you again to Nisha for chatting with us. Go see some shows, everyone, from the safety of your home Wi-Fi online. And if you can, send those artists a donation. They sure could use it. Bye. I Don't Get It is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app. I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Sit here thinking,